listening to the CIPD podcast series. In this podcast, I'll be talking exclusively to Tom Stewart, editor of the renowned Harvard Business Review. I caught up with him on his recent trip to London to talk about the art and science of team building. But first, I asked him about the differences that he's observed between people management and performance here in the UK and across the pond in America. Tom, I think it's fair to say that regardless of what sort of organisation HR people are working in, they're all interested in building sustainable high performance. Now, it seems to me one of the big challenges with this is that nowadays they're all doing this in an atmosphere where change is constant. Here in the UK, we're always being told that productivity is higher in the US, that you're better at achieving high-performing organisations. What's the secret? It strikes me that there are three characteristics on the macro level and it's interesting because they tie in in interesting ways to, to, to HR issues that help to create that, that productivity. One is a high degree of flexibility in the labor market, which is to say it's very easy to hire somebody. It's very easy to fire somebody. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there are very few restrictions around that, which means that it's relatively easy to allocate human resources to those places where you think they might get the most the most return. The second thing is a similar flexibility in the capital markets, which is to, so so both in human capital and financial capital you have a lot of flexibility and and there the issue strikes that that strikes me as being most relevant to productivity is that it's very easy to start a company and very easy to kill a company. Um, so, so you see a lot of a, a lot of new business formation in, in in the United States more than in Western Europe generally, and it's relatively easy to shut one down without without serious consequences. Those two things combine with, I think, a third element, which is which is a very powerful consumer segment. The consumer never met a product she didn't want faster and cheaper. And and so that is a very high and constant pressure on productivity. So you start with that demand pressure, give it to me faster, give it to me cheaper, give it to me better. And then you have the two conditions in human capital and financial capital that allow you to allocate resources to do that. Having said that about the U.S., what I think you're seeing, my sense is, is that we're seeing um, increasing um, – amounts of all three of those elements in, in Europe. So bringing this down to a, a corporate level, would you say that in the States, leaders, managers are getting more out of their people on the ground, that they're, that they're making them more productive? I wouldn't generalise about that. I mean, I, I, you can generalise about economies, but if you generalise, I wouldn't generalise and say American companies do it. I would say companies that are in America in general do it. I think when you get to the corporate level, you see extraordinary examples everywhere. Uh, you know, Tesco is every bit as extraordinary a retailer in terms of productivity, in terms of labor productivity, in terms of every, anything else as any retailer in the world. We published a few years ago a very interesting study by um, um, Nitin Noria, William Joyce, and Bruce Robertson two academics and one former consultant who did a long study of, of, of um, 160 companies and their performance over 10 years to try to look at, at what really works. What were the high-level management and leadership practices that were associated with long-term performance? And they found four that, every, that you have to have, four must-haves. 
one of them is strategy. You have to have a clearly focused strategy. It has to be a well communicated strategy, and you don't want to and you want, don't want to have a strategy of the month. Um, so you have to have a you know a a, a sensible strategy, well communicated and stuck to. Um, the second piece was an execution piece that you needed a culture and, uh, and, 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 and an organization that could develop and maintain what they called flawless operational execution. Um, the third was a fast, flexible, flat organization. So it was a structure that was fast, flexible, and flat. And the fourth was a performance-oriented, or I should say here, orientated culture. Um, and it's interesting, these last two, I think, are the ones that are most directly connected to HR practices. If you started looking at them at the, from an HR point of view, it would be very interesting, for example, and not too many HR leaders have done this, to think about, about corporate strategy and HR's relationship to it. You know, too often HR people, I think, say, all right, I've got a workforce, let me develop it, let me get the best people, let me let me give them leadership development training, let me give them the skills they need, let me, you know, sign up with the outside educators, let me get the best possible benefits package. But they don't spend a lot of time thinking about what's my strategy and what's my culture. I remember once, it's a long answer, but it's a good question. Uh, I remember once being on an airplane, sitting with my wife, and looking forward about 10 seats where there was a man standing in the aisle talking to another man, just looking at their body language and, and, and his gestures. And I said, those two people work for General Electric. And my wife said, oh, nonsense. And I said, let me go walk past them. You know, so I walked past them to the loo and back and said, yep, overheard their conversation. How did you know? I don't know how I knew, but there's something in a rather confrontational, direct style. I mean, they are—they don't mince words; they hatchet words. Uh, Very they, forceful they're, they're, they're forceful. They're forceful. They're direct. Um, they're productivity-oriented, um, and, and they're fact-based. And there was a sort of a "just the facts, ma'am" kind of quality in in, in the conversation that I recognized. Now, people who've worked at Hewlett Packard. In certain, the old Hewlett Packard, I don't know if this is still true, say that they can say the same, they can smell each other in a room, that alumni can find each other. It's a very different kind of culture, much more collaborative, much less aggressive, much less, much less forceful, more West Coast than East Coast in its style. But these things are associated with the way they deal with customers. And one of the interesting things to think about from an HR perspective is if this is our strategy, who should our people be? Well, I'm very interested in this and indeed how, how you bring those thoughts to bear on practical issues like team building. Because I, I know you have some strong views about this and certainly talking to HR people, I think a lot of them are finding, particularly in large organisations, their project teams are getting bigger, they're getting more complex, they're getting more unwieldy to manage, but what they're not necessarily doing is achieving their objectives any better. What are your thoughts about that? We just published some very interesting work by Linda Grattan at London Business School and, and Tamara Erickson of the Concourse Institute who are looking at exactly the, the team question. One of the things that Linda and Tammy found out is that teams are getting bigger and more diverse. The average team now in the companies that they study, used to the average size project team, used to be about 20 people. It's now about 100 people. It's so many, isn't it? It's, it's too many in a certain way. They're very diverse. They're working on very complex projects. I remember a few years ago um, talking to a fellow, um, a Silicon Valley man, who was talking about the first microchip that he designed, and he said, I did it. 
you know, he designed his first, this first chip. The most, the company's most recent generation of chips was designed by 200 people. So it's partly the very complexity, certainly, of technology work that has done it. It's the cross-border nature of things. And it is also the fact that more and more companies are providing solutions rather than simple products or services. So when you're providing a solution, you are often coordinating the work of more than one group. So that we're, you know, we've got three different profit centers, three different P&Ls trying to provide one solution to you. So, so, so the coordination becomes complicated there. So team size is, is growing and they're becoming more diverse so that you have, you don't just have, you know, Englishmen in marketing, you have a global team of men and women in marketing, finance, engineering, and customer service, all trying to deliver something in a team of, of, of 100 people. And a number of things happen. First of all, they don't like each other. <laughs> the marketing people speak marketing. The customer service people speak customer service. Uh, you know, they, they, and, and, and if you just leave them alone, they will have a hard time gelling. Diversity is a good Diversity gives you, you know, more different approaches, more, more, more points of view. But if you don't manage it, it can actually lead to something rather like, 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 like a, you know, a, a dance that, that 11 or 12-year-olds go to where the boys are on one side and the girls on the other and the twain almost never meet and they sort of sit there and glower. So how do you make all these talented people collaborate? The first thing is you give them something to do. One, one of the things that, that, that Linda and, and Tammy discovered is because of these tensions that are inherent, um, it's not a good idea to sort of give them a lot of st- you know, stuff to bond about. The, you know, let's bake a cake or, I mean, or let's, let's get together and tell our life stories. You know, some of this soft, fuzzy stuff is, 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 is actually will simply allow them to discover their differences rather than their commonalities. Oh, that's interesting. Um, there was an old... Um, 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 American colonel who served in the Vietnam War at a time when part of the one of the slogans from the United States government was um, um, was to win the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people, and this colonel, in a sentence that was extremely politically was controversial at the time and politically incorrect, said, "You know, my philosophy is if you get them by the balls, their hearts and minds will follow." <laughs> Um, well, there's some there's some truth Gosh. to that. Hmm. Yeah, there's some truth to that. You give people something to do, and they will start working. So get them to work. So they don't need to love each other. They don't need to love each other. They need to have a common task. You know, I think one of the reasons that husbands and wives divorce at, 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 at when when there's when they have an empty nest, you know, at 45 or whatever, when the children are grown, is suddenly they don't have anything to do. You know, they don't have a common task. So start with that common task. Get them working. Um, and then there are a number of factors that, that will really help. One is to invest in, in signature relationship practices. These are the things at Royal Bank of Scotland. Every day, the top executives get together. Wherever they are in the world, they get together for an hour or an hour and a half on the phone. They have that meeting every day. If you are a senior executive of RBS, you do that. It's, 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 a, it, it's a sign that you're there. So signature practices like that help a team work together. We're always going to be together doing that. The top leadership has to model collaborative behavior. You know, if you get the leadership team going off to the offsite and everybody says, well, take off your corporate hat or your department hat and put on your corporate hat, and then they come back and put their department hat back on, you know, if they model uncollaborative behavior, 
the organization is going to pick it up. So they need to lead by example they need to lead, and really they, mean it. They need to lead by example, really mean it. And by the way, you know, just as a dog can smell fear on a man, an organization can smell hypocrisy on a leader. So, so they, have to, they have to lead by, 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 by an actual example. You have, to provide the, you have to provide the right skills. I mean, this is, there is an element of, of skills, and here's where, where HR can really play an important role. Human resources departments that teach employees how to build relationships, how to communicate well, and how to resolve conflicts, and how to do that in a creative way can make a major, a major contribution. These teams will have conflict. And too often, people think conflict is bad. It must be repressed. We must, you know, if we have conflict, shh, paper over it. You know. No, you need, you need to resolve conflict rather than bury conflict. And, and, and there's a lot of, of skill building in the conflict resolution space that, where HR can, can contribute, um, supporting a strong sense of community. I, I, I mean, I said it earlier that you don't necessarily want to just sort of go out and have. It's not. Um, Linda likes to say it's not. It's not all sitting around and singing kumbaya, <laughs> but but you know, once you've got that work going, you want to celebrate your wins. You want to celebrate your conflicts. You want to get around and sing and and and, and sing kumbaya from time to time. So a degree of socialising together, if you can do it. Absolutely. Now it's interesting you say that because a lot of HR people have said to me that they have felt in building these enormous teams that they have almost become an end in themselves. The team has become the objective. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's kind of what you're talking about, isn't it? They it become is. detached from the organization. And, and, and you want both because you want that sense of here we are, you know, we're, we're a team, we're special, we're the red team, we're the green team, we're the whatever it is, project team. Um, so you do want that hot group Warren Bennis talks about. Uh, you, you want that sense of hot group morale. Um, but you want that hot group to be linked into the strategy and culture of the organization. You, you want them to be, to, to bear the organizational vision and strategy. Same in, brand. In mind. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. What can HR people bring to the table here? Because managing these sprawling teams, I must say, I do have some question in my mind about whether there is a sense of, of corporate safety netting here, that the teams are getting so huge. I, I wonder whether that is something that HR people should be putting forward as an idea. Do the teams need to be that big? That's a good question. I think that HR's role should be thought of in multiple d- dimensions here. One, as I said, is is in giving people... Um, the skills they need, helping people to get the skills they need to be good team players, to understand how teams work, to understand how conflict works. Another, I think, is to help in the architecture of teams. One of the things that Linda and, and, and Tammy, Linda Gratton and Tammy uh, Erickson, just describe in this article in HBR that we, we published uh, in November and, and in the research that they have done, they, they describe something that they call role clarity and task ambiguity. And what they mean by that is that if we are on a team together, we should know, you should know what your role is. I should know what my role is. Um, But we don't necessarily know what we're going to be doing in our roles because the world is changing. It's a fact, you know, because part of the reason you're forming teams is the work is not routine. So it's, it's rather like American football where, you know, your position, but you don't know the play. Um, and, and, and and I think HR can help in constructing teams with that kind of with that kind of understanding can help in the I think a skill that and a discipline 
that, that HR should be d- developing is the skill of team design. Um, because frankly, general managers don't have it. General managers shouldn't have to have it. General managers, this is exactly the kind of thing where a smart manager, marketing manager, whatever he is, a smart team leader ought to be able to call a smart person in HR, say, I need to put together a team to do this, help me design a team. At a very practical level, I was interested to see that Linda took the view that when you're putting a team together, at least 20 to 40% of those people need to know each other already for that team to be effective. That's right. You talked earlier about the difficulties of actually measuring performance, assuming you've got your great team together, they're collaborating beautifully. What you really want is them to achieve their objectives. How do you measure those objectives effectively? How do you measure team performance? That's a very good question, and I don't have a very good answer to it. Um, one, One place to start is to decide whether this is a project team. And if so, whether project management techniques and skills should be brought in. Um, And, you know, in classic project management, the part of the project manager's job, and indeed maybe his or her most important job, is to guard against the dreaded scope creep, you know, which is where you start out saying, let's have a, let's let's start out saying, let's have a cup of coffee and you end up buying Brazil. Yeah, I think we um, call this mission creep. Earlier, mission yeah. creep, yes. Scope <laughs> creep, mission creep. Um, so, so some teams, I think, are project teams and some teams should be measured with that sort of project management skill and intensity. This is what we're trying to do. We're not trying to do more. We're trying to do X by Y date you know, for Z money. And that's that. And, that, and that's that. I think it becomes much more complicated when the teams are how you're running the company. And much more complicated when, for example, you're providing solutions to a customer. And if you are an IBM and working across five or six different P&Ls, trying to pull together consulting, software, hardware, and multiple kinds of hardware, along with um, computer operating services, each of which has a P&L, which is, uh, uh, and you're trying to provide this for a large client in a multi-billion dollar deal, how do you make the trade-offs between P&Ls? That's a problem. Uh, how do you keep knowledge going when the team's work may extend over a long period of time? So you may not even know what your best practices are, or you might not even know what your mistakes are because the time between cause and effect may be very long. And, and, and how do you end up saying it was good? Um, I, I, it, it, it's, it's not altogether clear. And I, I think one of the things that, that – companies um, need to do, and I think HR can play a major role. I mean, this is where HR, somebody creative from HR and somebody creative from finance uh, ought to find ways to talk together. I realize that this is Jack Spratt and his wife, um, um, but, but, it, but, 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 but that's the kind of opportunity that needs to, I think that needs to be developed to really develop, I think, a, a better, better ideas of performance measurement and management in large, complex, diverse teams. Just expanding on the idea of what HR as a profession can do better. You spend a lot of your time looking at people management practice at HR, how it's done in the States, how it's done here. What could they do better? Where is HR missing a trick, would you say? Well, you know, the ability to sort of denounce HR, uh, I mean, there's a long tradition of that. Uh, um, I did it in a, in a rather notorious column when I was at Fortune magazine. Uh, Peter Drucker did it 
ones. I think everyone's thrown a few bricks at HR. Oh, yes, ex exactly. You know, enough bricks so that HR can, you know, build a magnificent building out of it. Um, but it seems to me that the fundamental opportunity for HR is to understand that the word equity has two different meanings. A lot of what HR needs to do, and it is important, is to create equity in the sense of fairness around an organization. You know, you know, equal pay for equal works, reasonable working practices, reasonable benefits. I mean, you know, uh, and, and a general sense that people are treated fairly around here. It's it's that is, if you will, the 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 HR hygiene factor. It's got to be done. But it's, it's necessary, but it's by no means sufficient. What HR really needs to do is build on equity in the other sense, which is value, which is, you know, wealth, which is capital. And, and to start thinking of itself truly, and not just in, you know, changes of nomenclature, truly uh, as building and, and as being the steward of and the builder of human capital and, and responsible for human, not only just for having human capital, but for, for making that human capital productive, for putting that human capital to work. That mindset is, is talked about at the top, at, among some very top HR professionals. It's given lip service to all over the place, but, but too often, I remember once going to a, to a, to a gathering of corporate librarians, just by way of analogy, and, and it was a large gathering, a thousand people in Indianapolis, Indiana, um, and I was asked to give some kind of a talk, and I was, I was giving a talk, and various other people like Stan Davis were giving a talk about knowledge, you know, the currency of the 21st century, and so on and so forth, and that's what the whole theme of the conference was, and then if you looked at all the, that, that was the keynotes, but then if you looked at the 99% of the rest of the conference, it was, do we want to use the Dewey Decimal System or some other system? I mean, it was, it was down there at that lowercase e equity level, you know, or, sure. or lowercase l lowercase k knowledge level in the librarian's case. So I think that, 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 that there needs to be a really systematic effort to figure out what we're trying to do. How do we tie our training to strategy? Now, we are increasingly seeing, and, 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 and I think this is a global phenomenon, that more and more companies don't just want to train you in generic leadership skills or generic marketing skills. Their issue is we're trying to get to open a market in Eastern Europe, how do we train you in marketing skills applicable to that? That's the kind of work that ties HR leadership to real business problems. And that's the kind of work that builds capital E equity rather than just lowercase equity. Fascinating stuff. But on that note, I allowed Tom to return to his day job back in the States. Go to cipd.co.uk forward slash podcast to find the show notes to accompany this program. And join us next month when I'll be looking at some of the latest developments in the world of reward and benefits. Until then, goodbye. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series.